Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Brad Lancaster. We're going to talk about rainwater harvesting for dry lands, and we're going to talk about his uh, work in permaculture, regenerative, regenerative design, consulting, and education. So, Brad, thanks for coming. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Yeah, how did you uh, get to work on harvesting rainwater and get into this field? What's a bit of your background? Yeah, well, I grew up here in Tucson, which is dry land community, just getting 11 inches of rain a year. And uh, as I grew up, I saw the water situation get worse. Um, our groundwater level dropped, wells went dry. You know, we, we killed our river. It had largely been killed before I arrived on the scene, but just saw things get worse. So I didn't want to be part of the problem. I wanted to be part of a solution and uh, started seeking that out. And uh, after college, I took a permaculture class, which I liked in that it was focused on solution-based, more on rather than just articulating problems. And what really lured me into the class was this concept of harvesting the rain, you know, harvesting water. And uh, so I was really intrigued by that. 
And the class was good, but it left me with more questions than answers. Um, but what really made me see what was possible is when I had the chance in 1995 to travel to the driest region of Zimbabwe. And there I met this uh, subsistence farmer who was known in the area as the water farmer because he planted the rain before he planted any crops. And uh, I was just amazed by what I saw that he and his family had done. They had risen the water table um, to the point that they um, no longer needed, you know, wells or, or, or pumps. The, the water came up to the root zone of the plants and springs were created. And it was, yeah, it was just relative oasis compared to what was around. And I love that he and his family, they figured out how to do this. No one taught them. And they, uh, they've taught, you know, thousands of others since. And, uh, he took, you know, I, I, for whatever reason, when I was talking to him, I said, you know, I am, uh, I'm thinking of leaving my town because I, I don't want to be part of the problem of our dwindling water. And he said, well, you can't leave. You got to go and you got to set your roots deeper than you ever thought possible. And that you have to try and turn your problems into solutions. Cause if you don't and you run away from your problems, they'll follow you and you'll plant problems everywhere you go. And, uh, but if you instead turn, figure out how to turn those problems into solutions, well, that's a skill you can take anywhere that's of high value. So that just really resonated with me at the time. And so I came home all gung-ho and, you know, just started experimenting as he and his family had done and seeking out others and learning and, yeah, learning from doing. And, and it just kept going from there. And then I wrote the water harvesting books because I couldn't find the books that I wanted. So I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to have to write them. I don't know if it's an urban legend, but I heard it's uh, what illegal to collect rainwater in some places. Is that true or is that BS? No, in some places depends. So, for example, uh, for a, a number of years, it was illegal in the state of Colorado to harvest rainwater in tanks, collecting the water off your roof. Things have changed for the better in some ways. But one thing that was always legal, it was never a problem, was to harvest rain in rain gardens in the soil in these basin-like shapes in the landscape, and then you vegetate. That, that's always been legal everywhere. It's only when you harvest water in tanks that sometimes it becomes an issue. But as I mentioned, the laws have changed in Colorado. So if you're not hooked up to the water grid, um, you know, like you don't have a city water line to your place or sewer line from your place to the sewers, uh, uh, municipal sewer system, you can legally harvest rainwater off your roof in tanks, no problem. Um, but if you're in the city and hooked up to the grid, it's crazy. They they say you can't do more than 100 gallon storage capacity, which is it's nothing. That's just a plaything. What what could possibly be the reason? Well, I think it's a it's a misconception, in that uh, I think the people writing the laws um, have a worry that you're maybe stealing water from folks downstream. And actually, what's interesting, what changed the law in Colorado, enabling people to legally harvest rainwater from their roofs and tanks if they weren't hooked up to the water grid was a study that this uh, engineer did, Bjorn Courtney. She did it for a developer that wanted to develop a housing community south of Denver and with no connection to the water grid. And uh, so she did a bunch of studies. She went out there in rainstorms and she found that uh, typically in a typical rain, you know, you don't get more than uh, five uh, three, I think it's 3% of the rain running off the site. The majority, you know, 97% infiltrates into the soil. And then she did computer modeling based on all the data she collected on the site. 
And, and keep in mind, this is a site that's vegetated. It has, it's not a site that's been cleared or paved. Okay. So then she uh, did the computer modeling on the data she collected and found that even if there was an astronomical biblical flood event, not more than 15% of the rain would run off the site. You know, 85% would infiltrate. So she took that to the state legislators and said, look, you're, you're basing your laws on um, misconceptions. Here's the data. And so then they, they changed the law. Now, unfortunately, they didn't change the law in the city. And you know, if you're hooked up to the water grid, and I think that was a political decision where I think they wanted you know, more control uh, over the folks that were already on the grid. Because obviously it doesn't make a difference if you're in, in, uh, hooked up to the water grid or not hooked up to the water grid ecologically things perform the same way that little piece strikes me as an arbitrary political decision so you said you're from tucson and they only get what 11 inches a year or so i think that's yeah. what you said yeah um, so how much rain okay if a place gets x amount of inches of rain uh what does that translate to in terms of storage and uh you know how much that would give you so there's other climates where it's just not worth it to do rain harvesting where it's so bad or in most places it is it is worth it no, I'd say anywhere that has a dry season or a dry climate, um, it, it makes sense. Um, or any place that experienced is drought. So, for example, I got to teach and learn in uh, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And so they get two and a half inches of rain a year. And yet there is this rich history of rainwater harvesting throughout the area. Whereas in you know, the old town and whatnot, um, every building has a cistern in its basement. So it's, it's ever more important. You want to harvest every drop you can get. And then let's look at an opposite scenario. Let's look at New Orleans, Louisiana. So they're getting, you know, over 50 inches of rain a year. And there it makes a ton of sense because there's been so much contamination of the surface waters, the river waters and whatnot with industry and agriculture and whatnot, that a lot of that water is too contaminated to, to drink safely. So rainwater becomes the safer, cleaner water. So uh, there, yeah, a lot of people are taking it on. So it's just that the driver, the need changes. So say, uh, you know, in my climate, people are harvesting rainwater because there's a perceived scarcity because it's a desert climate. Whereas in others, uh, such as in Portland, Oregon, they're harvesting rainwater to reduce flooding. And in Louisiana, they're harvesting rainwater because they need a, you know, higher quality water. Uh, than the contaminated waters in the area. So yeah, the, the driver changes, but uh, water harvesting is all around the world. And in every climate in the world, well, everywhere in the world that has a dry climate or dry season or experiences drought has traditions of water harvesting. Whether or not the majority of the population is aware of that, the traditions are there. And if you just look a little, you find it. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. 
have you seen any cities or towns that require, you know, if you have a house that you, you do some rainwater collection and let's say feed it back into the water supply? Uh, yes. in different scenarios. So for example, and, um, Bermuda and whatnot. Um, yes, everyone has to build a cistern if you're going to build a house. And, uh, that's because there's not reliable groundwater. So, uh, you direct your roof runoff into your tank and that's your primary water source in, um, Jordan in the middle East. Uh, there's a law that every new building has to be built with, um, a rainwater tank in it, in its basement or somewhere on site to preserve what little falls from the sky. And interestingly, I visited another area of Jordan in some older communities where people have been harvesting rainwater for thousands of years. So anytime people are building a new home and they're digging a trench for their foundation or digging a hole to plant a tree, they come upon these cisterns, these rainwater tanks in the ground that are from the Roman and Byzantine era. And uh, what's awesome is they're like, oh, well, we could still use this. So they dig out, you know, all the dirt and refuse that's accumulated in these ancient cisterns over, you know, many years, many thousands of years. And they, uh, they replaster it and it's all ready to go. So they build their new house right next to this ancient Roman era cistern and they direct the roof runoff into that cistern and that's their water supply. And uh, in terms of do cities require that you put in a tank that feeds the, um, the municipal system, I'm not aware of that in the contemporary context, but um, it certainly happens in the ancient context. So much of Istanbul, Turkey is built over ancient cisterns that would collect water from the streets and uh, became a, uh, a community supply. Right, those systems in Turkey still work today. They're still using them. Yeah, that's amazing. How do I calculate how much water I would get? You know, if it rains, uh, you know, I'm in Austin, Texas, and yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm sizing a rain barrel, let's say, you know, how do I correlate? Okay, we get uh, 18 inches of rain. You know, I'm just making this up year a year. How do I know about approximately how much I'll get with each rainfall or over the whole year? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, okay, I'll give you just a real quick rule of thumb. So you can collect 600 gallons of rainwater for every inch of rain that falls from the sky on a 1,000 square foot catchment surface. So if you had a 1,000 square foot roof, you'd get 600 gallons with every one inch of rain falling from the sky. Now, if you want more specific calculations... I've got a ton in my um, in the calculations appendices of my books, but one is you take your catchment area in square feet, you multiply that by your rainfall in feet, and right there, you know, I might lose some people. They might be, wait a minute, I think of rainfall in inches, not feet. So there's 12 inches in a foot. So let's say you get six inches falling from the sky. You just uh, divide six by 12, and then you get the, the number in feet. Um, so, you know, so again, I'll give you the calculation. It's catchment area in square feet times rainfall in feet. And that will give you cubic feet of rain falling on that surface. Now you probably don't think in cubic feet. So you think in gallons. So multiply your figure by 7.48 and that converts cubic feet to gallons. And gotcha. I, yeah, hopefully you catch that. That's a lot to spew out in an audio fashion. It's easier when you look at the calculation. <laughs> well, I'm sure, I'm sure there's probably calculators online too, or maybe there's oh, yeah. Definitely. So what, yeah. what about a, a rain barrel? Um, you know, they don't have a big catchment area. They're 
sitting at the downspout of a gutter off a roof, great. But if you have a rain barrel sitting there, is it worth it to even have one? And how much rain did you catch? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in my typical answer, if you live in an area that gets, you know, sudden downpours of rain and you can go a long spell without rain, probably doesn't, does not make sense to get a rain barrel. It's just too small. It's like a play thing. It's a little toy. So you probably need a larger tank. Where the, where the tiny rain barrels make more sense is where you have continuous rain you know, in wetter climates. So uh, here's a basic, another rule of thumb I'll give you. Um, at least in my area where we have both summer and uh, winter rains, but very little rain in the spring and fall, I just look at how much rain is falling on my surface area, my roof in a year, and I divide that by four. So I basically want to tank that's sized to handle 25% of the rainwater coming off my roof. And why is that? Why do I want that amount? Because I figure, well, I'm going to use up all the water that's collected in the tank in the two rainy seasons. So the, all the rain I capture in winter is going to be used up by summer. So I don't have to size a tank for all the rain coming off my roof. You know, just just 50% would be plenty. But then again, you also want to consider, well, you're going to be using water, especially in the summer months, you know, when it is a rainy season. So you're going to be making more room in your tank so you can divide it in half again. And so that's why I divide the amount of water falling in my roof by four. So I don't oversize my tank. I don't get a tank that's too big. Um, depending on your uses, maybe you want more tank, maybe you want less, but that rule of thumb I just gave you is a really good starter. Hard to screw up. Okay. That's good. That relieves some of the burden. One other thing, I was just going to say this, if you're like, well, well, wait a minute, I don't have enough money for the size of tank that that's telling me to do. Well, then don't do your whole roof. Just do half the roof. You can drop the size of the tank in half. But how do you collect it? Do you use the gutter system on the roof or is there another way? Yeah. So I use the roof gutter. I like to use gravity to move the water for free. That way there's no pump that can break, no pump I have to buy. So as long as I have my tank lower than the gutter, I can use gravity to direct it in. And I ideally put my rainwater tank on the high part of the property so I can direct rainwater from the high roof into the tank that's now higher than the rest of the yard, or at least or at least higher than most of the rest of the yard. And then I can use gravity to direct the water out from the tank to all points below. So it just keeps the costs way lower, makes it easier. And I don't know, this might be a little technical, but when I do the faucet that I put on my cistern, I don't get a standard faucet that you get at the hardware store. Instead, I get what's called a full port valve or a full port faucet. And if you look up full port on my website, harvestingrainwater.com, I show you examples and where you can get them. The difference is, is a standard faucet on a typical municipal water line, the gate, the valve, the part that you open and close there, it constricts to 25% of the opening of the pipe at that gate. So if you're using gravity to move your water, when the tank is low in water, water just trickles out with those standard valves. Whereas if you use a full port valve, which is a valve that has no constriction at the gate, it maintains the same aperture or full diameter of the pipe through the whole valve. As long as I have that valve open and on, water just pours out. So it's a joy to use the rainwater coming from the tank, even if I'm using gravity, because the flow is really good. And you want to make it more convenient, easier, and funner 
to do the things you want to do, okay, and make it less convenient to do the things you don't want to do. So, for example, I want to use rainwater because that's the free water. That's the highest quality water. So I don't know if you've ever watered like house plants with rainwater and then you've watered them with city water. You'll find yeah. that they do way better with the rainwater. And, and that's even because, if, um, but one second, even if it's running off a roof with asphalt and granules and all that other stuff, like how much filtering needs to be done and does it spoil the water at all for it to be running off a roof? So you got to figure in terms of for irrigation use, that's not a problem because that's already happening. That water's already hitting the ground in various plants. But if you are wanting to, if you're going to build from scratch, I like to get, um, a, a metal roof because that's even higher quality water. But you can harvest your rainwater off an asphalt roof for you know, irrigation, no problem. And uh, and you can paint your roof, too, with elastomeric paints. Um, in hot climates, that's a really good idea because if you have, like, a white roof, it dramatically improves the, the free cooling. You don't have that dark-colored asphalt that's heating up your house when you don't want it to be heated. And you can purchase elastomeric roof paints that are made for rainwater collection that don't have toxins in them because unfortunately a lot of roof paints contain biocides or mossicides which are these that inhibit life they're little toxins that kill off moss from growing on your roof it's not a problem having moss growing on your roof um it's a good thing um in terms of quality of water so uh you can be careful selective into what materials you introduce into your system. Make sure you use non-toxic materials. And on my, on my uh, website, harvestingrainwater.com, you can go to the rainwater page and then go to the resources page. And I list materials like roofing materials, tank materials, gutter materials that are rated for rainwater collection. They don't have any biocides. In it. Well, typically if someone's on city water, just to be harsh, I mean, why should they care about harvesting rainwater? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, so in my climate, we are using our groundwater uh, through the municipal system. And we are using it at a much faster rate than that groundwater is being recharged. So as a result, um, the groundwater table keeps getting deeper and deeper. And the city has even started to drop because as we extract the water from the aquifer below, those pore spaces that used to be filled with water now are filled with air and that gets compressed with the weight of the earth and the city above. Um, so, uh, this harvesting rainwater is a much more sustainable water than the pumping of groundwater often is. Uh, what's more is the way I advocate harvesting rainwater is doing it in a way that gets you many more benefits. So it's not just a water source. I do it in a way that is also reducing flooding or eliminating flooding on my property and areas downstream. Um, whereas typically, unfortunately, the way we build these days, we're directing all the rainwater off our roofs and properties into the street. And then that runs down the street and floods people downstream. So we're causing flooding. So let's, let's flip that. Let's not be part of the problem. Let's be part of the solution. Another thing is if we retain rather than drain the rain, if we keep it on site, we're not draining. If you use pesticides and stuff in your garden or on, on your landscape, you're not draining that elsewhere and contaminating others. Um, you're instead keeping that on site and you can bioremediate it with uh, life and organic matter and mulch on site in your rain gardens. What's even better is just don't use those pesticides and toxins in the first place. Um, but let's just say you got a dog that's, you know, pooping in the yard. 
So instead of that poop being washed out with the, the rainwater and um, causing water quality issues downstream, you're keeping stuff on site. You might be like, well, why would I want to keep that stuff on my site? We'll pick up the dog poop if that's a problem. Otherwise, if you want to create a passive filtration system, you create well-mulched, uh, high-life uh, rain gardens, these areas where you're soaking the water, where it's not a problem, it's away from the houses, it's on the periphery of your property, and you've got trees and stuff growing. And uh, all that organic matter and that life in the soil creates like a living filter that filters out those um, potential toxins. And in the case of dog poop, uses that as a free fertilizer. Um, but you're keeping that water on site and you're getting it into the soil, not causing it to run off over the soil. So it's better for everyone in all life. Hope, yeah. hope that makes sense. Yeah. How, how do you prevent water from fouling if you're storing it? Like what are the, the problems that uh, cause water to go bad? Yeah. Okay. So you mean if it's in a tank? Is, right. Is yeah. That... You've collected it and now it's sitting for a length of time and you're using it slowly. You know, how does it not go foul? Yeah. Great question. Okay. First off, don't let crap get into your tank in the first place. So I have what's called a rainhead screen. So at the, I have my roof gutter and then the roof gutter is drops into a downspout that brings the water off, you know, down from the gutter to ground level. Well, right there at the, at the bottom of the gutter, I put in this screen box. It has a screen at a 45 degree angle. So the water can go through the screen, but organic matter like leaves and stuff can't. And that shoots off the screen. Okay. So I'm keeping that organic, the bulk of that organic matter out of my tank in the first place. And it also keeps out insects. It keeps out critters like rats and stuff. So I don't have dead animals in my water. That makes a huge difference. Okay. That, that's the main thing I would recommend you do. If you want to take it another step and you're like my climate where we have many months with no rain and then we hit the rainy season at the beginning of the rainy season, I'll sweep off my roof and clean out my gutters. So there's even less organic matter in the system. Uh, so that's the main thing. Keep organic matter out. If you want to take it a little further, you could um, also, uh, in, if you don't want green algae growing in your tank, you just have a light proof tank and it's easy to purchase those. Or you could buy a non-toxic elastomeric paint and paint the exterior of the tank um, to keep uh, the light out. Okay. And um, what kind of savings in terms of, uh, you know, money do people achieve? I know it depends on everything, but, you know, what are some ballparks like you've been able to achieve or other people, you know? Yeah. So that, as you say, there's a lot of variables in that. So it depends on how much water you use already. It depends on how much your municipal water is, or if you're on a well, what's the cost of maintaining your well and its pump and all of that. So you can basically get to the point where, you don't have a water bill. So I haven't, you know, we've, my brother and I, we share a property here in Tucson. We dropped our water consumption, city water consumption so much. We had the city water company come out four times because they said, what's going on? There's no way you can use so little water. And uh, like, no, no, here, we'll turn on the faucet. You can see the meter click. And uh, like, how is this possible? We said, well, we're harvesting our rainwater. We're also harvesting our lightly used water, our gray water. So the water that goes down our drains of our showers, washing machines, sinks, so forth. We don't send that to the sewer. We send that out to the landscape. 
And that's another great source to tap is you've already paid for that water. So why just send it right down the drain after you've barely used it? We instead redirect it to the landscape. And even in times of no rain, if you're showering or washing your clothes, you've got gray water. It's a perennial water source as long as you're home. So use that water again. It's like, think of the, our planet's hydrological cycle. You know, this planet never runs out of water. Yeah, sections of the planet might for brief periods of time, but the planet doesn't. And that's because the planet and all its life forms and whatnot is reusing water again and again and again in a way that maintains or even improves the quality. We should take that as our inspiration and try and do the same. So our the gray water from our sink, showers, washing machine, once it goes through the, the vegetation and the life in our soils, um, in our rain gardens that also receive our gray water, it's much higher quality than it was when it came down the drain. So I don't know. So what, what do you think, uh, like what are some big projects or, you know, medium sized projects that you think should be put forth, let's say by a city or a municipality, or is this really better to be done just on an individual basis? Like what would be your recommendation and what kind of impact would it have? What are some things you'd like to have accomplished? Yeah. Well, that always depends on the, the needs and potential of whatever site you're working at. But let me just give a couple examples of my community. So my brother and I, we organized uh, an annual uh, tree planting program in my neighborhood. Because when we moved to this neighborhood on the north side of downtown Tucson, there were very few trees, especially along the streets. So the, the street side experience was like being in a, a sterile solar oven. It was just brutal. So um we wanted to create an environment where it was pleasant to walk and ride bikes and talk to your neighbors. So um, we started planting trees and we would plant the trees in these water harvesting basins, um, which was good, but we were missing the boat because when there was a big storm, we noticed, yeah, we're collecting all the rain that falls directly on the tree in the area around the tree, but there's far more water flowing down the street. And so what we really need to do is create basins lower than the street and then cut the street curb or drill a hole in the street curb to direct the street runoff to those street side trees. And I did some simple calculations and I found that the average residential street, the average neighborhood street, um, not a big street, drains over a million gallons of rainwater per mile per year. Okay, and that's enough water to freely irrigate over 25 trees on both sides uh, of the street per mile, or, or I'm sorry, I'm screwing up a little bit. What it, we found out is that's more than enough uh, water to freely irrigate um, trees totally lining the street and irrigated with nothing more than the runoff from the street. So this was a 180 degree flip from how things are typically done. Instead of draining water to the street, we were draining water from the street to street side planting basins with trees. And uh, so it's a free irrigation source. We do need to irrigate those newly planted trees for the first year, sometimes three years if it's a dry year, but then they're established and we use low water use native trees. So they're very easy to get established. And then we never have to water again. So this transformed our neighborhood. We used to be a solar oven like uh, hot, unpleasant neighborhood along the streets. Now we're one of the greenest neighborhoods in the city. Um, and temperatures have dropped substantially. You've got people walking and biking all the time. It's, it's a glorious transformation. So uh, 
when we were doing all this, some of what we were doing was what some would say is illegal, but I prefer to say it was pre-legal, meaning it hadn't yet been legalized. So when we started our work, we would find a dip in the street curb so that we could uh, direct street runoff through that dip to a street side basin. And we we do that on the edges of driveway uh, driveways where there was a dip in the curb where the driveway came came off. Um, but then there were so many other areas that didn't have a driveway. So we started cutting the curb. But that cutting of the curb to take water off the street for street side planting, that was illegal or pre-legal when we started. So we just did it on a Sunday morning when no one from the city was watching. And we proved the concept and we improved it. So we worked out our kinks, the mistakes, got it working really good, and then did a little more. And then when the city saw how well it worked, after our neighbors saw how well it worked, and we got a bunch of neighbors saying, we want to do this, let's legalize it. We approached the city and uh, we have since legalized the practice in the city. Not only is it legalized, the city's seen how well it works, they've mandated it in new city road construction and major road repair. Uh, and they've incentivized it with up to a $2,000 rebate per household if you do these strategies. So, you know, that's a 180 degree flip from when it was illegal, no incentives, and they were uh, creating streets that drained water rather than retained water. Now, you know, in a 10 year period, we flip that totally around. So that's something that could be done everywhere. Uh, similarly, off all our parking lots and whatnot, instead of having these barren, hot parking lots, let's use the runoff coming off the parking areas into sunken tree wells throughout the parking lot. So every parking lot can become a parking orchard where you're parking under a living carport of shade trees and you select the right shade tree, one that can also produce food. It's an orchard as well. And in fact, that's been taken on with the new policy here in the city of Tucson, where a uh, 12 years ago, this was passed, all new um, commercial properties have to harvest at minimum 50% of their landscape's irrigation needs with passively harvested water. So what does that mean? They don't need to have the cost or expense of any tanks. Instead, they can just slope their parking areas to the planting areas. So the parking lot becomes the free irrigation source of the plantings in the perimeter or within the parking lot. And we need more policy like that to you know, mandate uh, a better, more sustainable and livable way of doing things. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess, again, in summary, how beneficial for an individual homeowner would it be to harvest their rain, rainfall? What, you know, what would it do for them? And what are some tips for people that, you know, maybe facing water shortages, food shortages, fertilizer shortages, et cetera. What can, what can harvesting their rainwater do for them? Yeah, well, there's a number of things. So first off, um, by irrigating primarily with rainwater, you're going to have much healthier plants because rainwater doesn't have any salts in it, whereas our municipal and well water typically has salts. The salts are not so much of an issue on the east side of the Mississippi, but on the west side of the Mississippi, that's a big deal because we don't get enough rain flushing the salts out um, in our drier climates. So if you, if you irrigate with rainwater, you're flushing toxic salts away from the plants and away from uh, your soil and soil life. Whereas if you're irrigating with city or municipal water, you're introducing more salts, you know, more toxins. Um, and the only way to get rid of that is to apply ever more water. 
So by harvesting rainwater, you're able to use less water to get more, more health and, and vitality. Uh, the other thing is, as I was mentioning before, you can harvest rain in such a way that you're also going to reduce or eliminate flooding. So that's, that's a huge surplus. And then if you're redirecting the gray water from your household sink showers and tubs to uh, these same rain gardens in the landscape, well, now you're using the water you've already paid for. You're using it again, sending it to these same areas. So you, you don't have to. You don't have to water. I mean, every time you shower or wash your clothes, you're watering the plants. So it saves time. You're not, you're not having to go out there and doing irrigation and whatnot. And, and then the amount of life that comes into your, your yard and stuff um, with these systems, you got more hummingbirds uh, and, you know, pollinators and whatnot, uh, more songbirds. It's just a much more joyous, lively place. And your, your utility bills are going down the whole time. And so you mentioned, you asked, well, what happens if you're, you're running out of water? So here in uh, Tucson, Phoenix, you know, in Arizona, they're saying, well, um, we're going to have water cuts of 50% water cuts because uh, the Colorado River is, is drying up and the reservoirs, you know, like Lake Mead and such are, are drying out. Um, so that doesn't affect us when we're harvesting the rainwater and whatnot, because um, we're making the most of our local waters. We're reducing or eliminating our reliance on the distant imported waters because the Colorado River is over 300 miles away from Tucson. So when we use Colorado River water, we're pumping it 300 miles and an elevation rise of 3,000 feet. So we, we reduce or eliminate the need for that, at least in our, in our home. So we create a much more resilient conditions for ourselves and our community. Um, and by harvesting this rainwater and the gray water, we are recharging our groundwater. So we give back more rainwater to the system than we take out in a year. So we are creating a net benefit to the system, whereas most people are just pumping, extracting ever more water and compounding the problem. We're actually helping compound the solution. And if we got the more people we get to do that, you know, the greater the positive effect. So, you know, the whole idea is how can every individual act compound to more positive effects? And, you know, the, all this does that. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Um, any final tips for uh, setting up your own rainwater collection on a budget? You know, you don't have a lot of money to do it. What can people do? Yeah, so I I'd, typically what I recommend people start with is um, do the rain gardens first. You know, don't don't do a tank first. Because uh, even if you do put in a tank, you're going to need to direct the overflow somewhere. And you can just you can direct the overflow to these rain gardens you initially create. And the rain gardens, by harvesting and collecting more water in the soil and the vegetation, you're reducing your need for tank water or any other water source. So you're, you're first reducing your need for water. And then you can do a tank later if you want to augment it. But the nice thing about starting with the planting of the rain, you know, putting the, the rain into these rain gardens, is it costs no more than the price of a shovel. You know, if, if you're going to do the work, you do the shovel work and it's you know, no more than the cost of a shovel, you know, which I love. It's a great entry point. And uh, after you've, and then you can direct your gray water to these same rain gardens. You've already set up the topography that's ideal to capture that already uh, lightly used water. And then finally, if you're still like, no, I, I still want more. Okay, well then you can put in a tank. But that's typically the way I like to start. Yeah, no, that's excellent. 
Um, does anyone put in rain gardens or other type of uh, apparatuses where it holds, it collects the water during the day and then it releases it, let's say only at night on a timer where it might be more beneficial to the plants where they could take it up and not have the sun evaporate away quickly? Yeah, no, not with the rain gardens. With the rain gardens, that all works with uh, gravity. There's no pipe or plumbing or timers. But um, the thing is, it, it actually works in the way you're you're desiring because the with these rain gardens, we're not harvesting water on the surface like a pond. Instead, we're trying to create very sponge-like conditions with organic matter on the surface of the soil, living pumps of vegetation in the soil, uh, and abundant life burrowing through the soil like earthworms making little channels, which leads to conditions where the water infiltrates much more rapidly. And then the water is held subsurface not on top of the surface. This way, mosquitoes are not a problem because we don't have puddles of water. We, with the way I'm advocating harvesting rainwater, you reduce the mosquito issue. Right? You don't increase it because you're making less surface water available, you know, standing surface water available to the mosquitoes. And then once you've infiltrated that water below surface within the root zone, it's protected by that mulch and whatnot. You're reducing evaporative loss because of that insulative blanket-like effect of the organic matter, you know, like wood chip mulch on the surface and the shade of the vegetation and whatnot. And uh, so the vegetation can just uptake that water as it chooses and it lingers much longer because it's in this, this sheltered subsurface uh, microclimate. Mm, that's very cool. Mm. Well, excellent, Brad, you've given some great ideas and a really fascinating topic. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to start learning and doing this for themselves. Yeah, so um, I highly recommend people check out my, my books, Rainwater Harvesting for Dry Lands and Beyond, Volumes 1 and 2. And they can buy those books at deep discount, direct from me at my website, harvestingrainwater.com. And at that website, harvestingrainwater.com, I've also got lots of free information, like free videos, um, blogs, uh, resources, and whatnot that people can check out in image galleries. And if people are interested in some of that neighborhood work I talked about, you know, like what we're doing along our neighborhood streets, uh, my books, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, have a lot of information on that. But um, you can also check out the website, neighborhoodforesters.org. Um, it talks about our uh, neighborhood forestry program with our rain-irrigated uh, native food forest plants and plantings. Um, and uh, shows you how to do it. And we give you a template so you can use that, you can use the, our tools and strategies wherever you are. Um, of course, the plant palette is going to change. You know, if you change climates, the basic strategies work everywhere, but the plant palette always changes. And the plants you can best succeed with are plants native to your area because they've co-evolved with the climate, soils, and wildlife over millennia. So they're the easiest to succeed with. So yeah, okay. the web the website harvestingrainwater.com and neighborhoodforesters.org. Excellent. Brad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.